Well, God bless all of you again for being here. You've made it all the way well past the halfway mark, and so you're to be congratulated for that. I appreciate every act of kindness that's being shown toward me. I'm just enjoying myself so much, and I appreciate so much everything that you're doing to to help out in this gospel meeting effort. If you would, take your Bibles tonight, and let's settle into a study tonight in the book of Romans. And so if you would, turn to the book of Romans, and we'll be looking there in just a moment. If you'd like to, you can go ahead and be settling in Romans chapter 3. My wife has returned back to um, Athens, Alabama, but my parents are here tonight, and I'm glad that they can come. I recently moved them to Athens to be there with us, and that's just been a great blessing to us, and I hope it has been for them, and I'm glad that they were able to come up tonight and and support the, the gospel meeting here in this place. I cannot think of a more powerful book that deals with the depth of what God did to save us than the book of Romans. And what I'd like to do tonight is begin with a summary kind of statement as we begin that helps us to understand our situation. In a nutshell, the book of Romans is trying to help us to understand this, that we all have a deadly illness. That illness is sin. And if it is left unattended... It will result in death, eternal separation from the God of heaven forever and ever in a place of God's wrath. I like when teaching the book of Romans, I like to point out that when you enter the first three chapters, it's really kind of easy to think of it this way, that in chapters one through three, basically what you're doing in essence is you are entering a courtroom. And what you find in this uh, section is that the whole world is on trial. The charge is is that every single one of you have sinned against the God of heaven. Jesus is going to be the judge. The Apostle Paul being guided by the Holy Spirit is the prosecuting attorney. And basically what he does in chapter 1 is he hammers down and lays down a case against the Gentile world and shows that they are guilty of sin against the God of heaven, or at least that's the case that he is making. In chapter 2, you can just kind of imagine the Jews at this point are sticking out their chest and saying, Yeah, get on, Paul. But then in chapter 2, he turns to the Jews and he makes a solid, solid case against the Jews as well. And so he has done his work tremendously well. In chapter 3, the verdict is going to come in. Look at Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. Romans chapter 3 and verse 19. Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all of the world may become guilty before God. And then he says in verse 20, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And so it's as though God is saying here, is there anything you would like to say? And there's nothing that the defendant can say. All the world is guilty before the God of heaven. And then there's that passage that we're well familiar with in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 that simply says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And somebody has made the point here that at this point, every mouth is stopped. There's no defense that can be made. And so who in the world can step up to defend us? What we find in this case is that God's not going to step in and defend us. 
He's a holy God who cannot tolerate sin. He will not defend us in our error. He will not defend us in our sins. God will not. And Satan certainly will not. What he wants us to do is spend eternity in hell forever. So God will not, Satan will not, and we cannot. And so that's our situation here in Romans, uh, the first three chapters. What happens next is the sentence comes in. And the sentence is death in a place of God's wrath. I don't think that we can stress enough that the book of Romans lays heavy on that in these first three chapters. Over and over and over again, there is mention about the wrath of God. Let's just do a quick survey. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, look at what it says. In Romans 1 and verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God. Look at chapter 2 and verse 5. In accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Look at verses 8 and 9. I have often said that there are four of the most horrible words that you will ever read in verses 8 and 9. It says, To those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but rather obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath and tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. He's not through yet. Look one more time in chapter 3 and verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates, demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? Over and over and over again, the wrath of God is mentioned. This then is the death penalty that the book of Romans begins to speak about. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, listen to what Paul has to say. He says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so God's wrath involves this death penalty. When we talk about the death penalty, we're talking about two things. The word death simply means separation. Anytime you go to a funeral and there is someone's body who has been placed out before us, a body is lying there, but the soul has left the body. James says that the, the body without the spirit is dead. There has been a separation. When your soul separates from your body, you're dead. And so this is the first thing that will be involved in, in the penalty for sin, is that all of us have to die physically. There's a separation of the soul and the body. But the second part is that which I have no intention of ever being a part of. I want no part of it. It's what the Bible refers to as the second death. And that is the separation of the soul from God forever. This is the penalty for sin. Separation from the Almighty God forever. As somebody once said, hell is a place where God turns out the lights and leaves. It is as dark and as gloomy of a place as there could ever be. And there is eternal anguish forever and ever and ever and ever. But this raises this question, what if the book of Romans ended at chapter 3 and verse 20? If the book of Romans ended at chapter 3 and verse 20, it's over. It's done. 
And again, the penalty will be eternal separation from God forever in a dark, gloomy pit of fire and brimstone with no help of hope of ever being in the presence of God. That's what Romans is hammering down on in the first three chapters. And it's important that we see that and understand that. You know, now we live in a day where if somebody was here in this assembly, a lot of people wouldn't have that. We live in a day where nobody wants to hear any preaching like that. Everybody wants this kind of stuff where it's just kind of lovey-dovey and it's sweet and syrupy and nothing is ever said about this God, this God who is eternally angry over sin. Nobody wants any preaching like that. In fact, some time back, I was in Huntsville, Alabama, and I used to ride by it quite regularly. There was a sign that was up. It was some kind of religious establishment. And here's what they had on their sign. God is not mad at you no matter what. Now, maybe what they were trying to communicate is that God is a forgiving God and God is a God who wants to save you. Maybe that's what they were trying to communicate, but that doesn't do very well because what that's saying is, is no matter what you've done, God is not mad at you no matter what. And what I tell you about that right there is that just not, that doesn't jihaw what the scriptures say. That's an old term from my growing up years. The Bible says God is angry with the wicked every day. Now, somebody missed it, didn't they? That's exactly what the Bible says. God is angry with the wicked every day. People don't like preaching like that. But that's the kind of preaching that Paul began with in the book of Romans. But everybody loves to talk about salvation. Oh, we had this great assembly the other day and all. So many people got saved. Hey, did you hear about Johnny? Johnny got saved last night. And everybody talks about salvation. But here's my question. Saved from what? Saved from what? Doesn't the fact that we talk about somebody being saved, doesn't that imply that we are being saved from something? And I want to tell you, we need to understand what the something is. Because I'm convinced that until we understand the peril, until we understand our situation, we will never, ever, ever fully appreciate salvation as much as we should. Every salvation story that I've ever heard had peril in it. I want you to look at the screen just a moment. Does that picture, is that picture familiar to any of you? Yeah, I already see people going like that number. I've hardly ever preached that where there's not people who right away say, yep, mm -hmm, I got that. I'm taking you back to October the 14th of 1987. This baby that is being held in this rescuer's arms that was, uh, became known to uh, all of America and across the world as baby Jessica. Baby Jessica had gone into her backyard and was walking across her backyard she fell into a well casing that was eight inches wide, and she fell to a depth of 22 feet. She goes down 22 feet into the heart of the earth. She's stuck in this well casing, 22 feet deep. I can remember when that was on the news and how everybody was all wrapped up into that and everybody was so concerned about that. I'd come home at lunch and I'd say, is there any, any more news on baby Jessica? 
We were all worried. They began to talk about the kind of things that would be happening, how long she might could survive. They talked about hypothermia. They talked about a number of things like that. And everybody is scared to death because something's got to be done to help this baby. She's in peril. If I remember the story right, somewhere in there a rescuer was able to get his hand on her leg. Finally was able to get down with another shaft that had been dug. And they got across and he was able to get a hold of her leg. And he said, she won't budge. She won't budge. I'm afraid if I pull any harder, I'm going to, to break her leg or pull her hip out of joint or something. And my understanding was, the message was, break it. You know, and we hear that and we, and we cringe at that. But it's a whole lot better than losing this child. Break it. Fortunately, by the grace of God, they did not have to do that. Somewhere in the midst of it, they did some more things. And I never will forget that finally the news coverage broke in. There were lights shining down on this backyard in Midland, Texas, late at night. As though something was about to happen, and I never will forget the eruption that occurred across the whole world as this baby surfaced from the heart of the earth. She's alive. Baby Jessica is saved. But the reason that was so exhilarating to us is because we saw the peril. We saw the peril that was involved first. And there she is today, alive and well. And what I want us to understand tonight is that spiritually our situation was exactly the same. We were absolutely hopeless. Every single one of us were facing the wrath of God. But out of Romans chapter 3 and verse 21 comes this beacon of hope. It's like there's a dividing line between... 3 and verse 20, and 3 and verse 21. And when you come to chapter 3 and verse 21, it basically says, but now God. Look at what it says, Romans 3 and verse 20. But now. You ever notice how many times in the Bible we'll be at the end of our rope and the next verse will say, but God. Turns everything around. But now. The righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. God comes rushing in. When we are at a dead end, when we can do absolutely nothing, God comes in. And He provides the only way that we can be right with Him. The only way that we can be righteous now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. The next paragraph is where we're going to count the rest of our time tonight. And it has been said by some, in fact, one person said, Leon Morris said concerning this, this paragraph that we're about to read, that this is possibly the greatest single paragraph ever written. That's a pretty strong statement when you're talking about a whole Bible. But I will tell you this, when it comes to our salvation, I don't debate that one moment. <laughs> if it's not the greatest paragraph ever written, it's right there close to it. It is packed with depth as to what God did in saving us from our sins. Let's read it together, and then we'll break it down. Look at Romans 3, beginning in verse 20, 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, 
even the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation by His blood through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. First thing I want to talk to you about is God's wrath and the divine dilemma. What we've already done here in the first part of this lesson is we've laid down our foundation pretty solidly, haven't we? That we are under a death penalty. We are facing God's wrath. And God's wrath must be poured out on sin. That's not going to change. The penalty for sin is death. And there is no way to remove that penalty. The penalty for sin is death. God said it. He said what he meant. And he meant what he said. And that's not changing. But God is more than wrath. Thank God. God is also love. And here is what some have referred to as the divine dilemma. Now, I don't know that I necessarily like every bit of that description because God's never in a dilemma. It's not like God said, well, now I never counted on that. Now, what am I going to do now? God's never in a pickle. But what we are seeing here is that there is something here that has to be worked out. There is something here that's going to have to be dealt with. And here's the idea. God's wrath demands justice. He demands the penalty be paid. Again, that's what God is. God is just. And there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that's ever going to remove that. His justice demands that the penalty be paid. But, on the other hand, the Bible says that what God wants to do is that He wants to justify us. He wants to set us free. So here's the tension. How can God be just and have the penalty paid and at the same time justify us and release us from paying it? That's the tension that Romans chapter 3 and verse 26 says, that he might demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How's God going to balance this? If you look at the screen, here's the way I love to demonstrate it. The question here is, how do you fix this problem? Listen to this statement. There is no problem in the world so difficult as that of forgiveness. How to remit punishment without cheapening sin. How to pardon the wrong and yet vindicate the right. How to restore the guilty and yet teach the offender to hate his offense. This person says it's a problem fit for God. Only God would know how to answer this thing. How did he do that? Are you seeing what I'm seeing? God comes in with the cross of Jesus Christ. And he meets the demands of himself. It's at the cross where justice and justification meet. 
Furthermore, in Romans chapter 3 here, in this paragraph that we're looking at tonight, the Bible simply says that God set Jesus forth. You know, before Jesus came, you know, you, the devil must have been screaming. <laughs> before Jesus came, the devil must have absolutely been screaming because God for so long had been passing over the sins that were previously committed. In fact, he said that in verse 25, didn't he? Because God in his forbearance had passed over the sins that were previously committed. You can just kind of imagine the devil wanting to say something like, Where's your justice? All these people are sinning. All these people are doing all these things wrong. And you're just letting them off the hook. Where's your justice? You're not a righteous God. If so, where is your righteousness? Here's the accuser of the brethren at work. But the day came when God once and for all demonstrated to all of the world how he feels about sin and what he does to make us right with him. This phrase, God set forth Jesus that phrase set forth means to be put on public display. And in essence, that's what God did. God put Jesus on public display for all of the world to see. And in essence, is saying, this is what sin does and this is how I deal with it. Jesus took the penalty for our sins upon himself. The wrath of God for sin was funneled out on Jesus. And I normally don't do this, and I, I don't know, you know, altogether how people might feel about it, but I sometimes feel it necessary. I want you to look. And that's not a real picture of the deal, but from my study of the Scriptures and my study of crucifixion, I want to tell you, that is pretty much right on the mark. He was a mess of a man. He was brutalized and tortured by a group of men a society that did that with expert precision. And God wants us to understand when we look at that, don't you ever accuse me of not doing right when it comes to sin. This is what sin does. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 3 that when Jesus paid that penalty, that God was demonstrating at that present time His righteousness. Somebody has pointed out that really God had three choices. One of the choices was, he can just let it go. <laughs> just forget it. But you know, there's a real problem with that, because he can't do that. If he lets it go, there's no justice. A second possibility is, he can make us pay it. But there's a problem there too, because God does not want that. God does not want you and I to have to pay that penalty. So what in the world is he going to do? He can't let it go. That messes with his justice. He can't make us pay it or won't make us pay it. Doesn't want to make us pay it because of his love. That only left one more option. And that is that he could very simply just pay it himself. And there's the balance in every bit of this. And again, the text says that God set him forth. Don't miss that. God set him forth. God's the hero in this story. We have absolutely nothing to give. Years ago, I heard it demonstrated this way, or somebody was telling this story. 
about a, 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 an elephant and a mouse. And a mouse wanted to get a ride across this old bridge. And so the mouse asked the elephant for a ride across this old bridge. And the elephant reached down and got the mouse and set it right on its back. And as the elephant went across that bridge, that stone bridge, it creaked and it groaned, uh, groaned and it cracked and it popped. And it did all of that stuff as they go across the bridge. Thunderous sounds are coming forth as it goes across the bridge. It gets to the other side. And the mouse says, we sure shook that thing, didn't we, big boy? <laughs> you know as well as I do, that mouse had not added one single thing to that. And when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to the ground of our salvation, when it comes to what was necessary for us to be saved, we have not added one single bit to that. All the shaking has been done by God. Ironically, when Jesus died, you know what happened? The Bible says heaven and earth shook. There was literally an earthquake at the moment that Jesus died. The book of Hebrews talks about a shaking that shook up the order of heaven. Things were changing. I've often said if you could take what happened at the cross of Jesus Christ... If we all were ever to fully understand what happened at the cross of Jesus Christ, if the full magnitude of Calvary could be put on a Richter scale, it would blow the needle off. When we think of all that God has done. Romans 11 and verse 36 says, For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. God is the one who has done all the shaking in this thing. Let's talk for a moment about something pretty important. Let's talk about this word that's mentioned in this text, the word propitiation. One of the things I try to point out to people is that anytime you come across a big word in the Bible, you need to stop and you need to look it up and you need to know what that word means. I have found out that big words have big meaning. But sometimes in Bible class, you have somebody teaching and they'll come over here to a passage like this and they'll say, um, it says that God set forth Jesus to be a propitiation. Oh, I can't even pronounce it. Let's just move on. And what an absolute tragedy that is. There is so much depth in this concept. Let's talk about this just a moment. The word propitiation has to do with appeasing one's anger. Appeasing one's anger. Now what have we already seen in this book? Who's angry? God's angry. What's he angry about? He's angry about sin. So something is going to be done here that appeases one's anger. In other words, something was given to God that appeased his wrath and allowed him to show mercy to us. And what Romans chapter 3 is stressing is that Jesus was given. Jesus was given. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus as he pays the penalty for our sins. And his anger was ended toward all those who would come to Christ. So we're seeing here something being given to God that appeases that anger. I want to tell you, this is not a concept that is strange to the Bible at all. Let me give you a couple of stories that you may remember. 
Do you remember in the Old Testament, there was that incident with Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, where they were basically saying to Moses and Aaron, who do you think you are? Why do you lift yourself up above the whole congregation? The whole congregation's holy. And basically what Moses says after talking to God about it, he says, get your censors and show up here tomorrow morning with your censors. And we'll find out something about this matter. Basically, I think what he's trying to say is, if you have the audacity to think that you have a right to be in the priesthood, that you have a right to be in the place of Aaron, get your censors and show up tomorrow morning. And they had the audacity to do it. And God was so angry, what God said was, get away from the tents of these men. And God opened up the earth and he swallowed all of those in Korah, Dathan, and Abiram's family Consume them in the pit of the earth. I want to tell you, that would have been enough right there for me. I would have been done with all my murmuring. But you know, the Bible says that they murmured again the very next day. Look at Numbers chapter 16. Look at verse 41. Numbers 16 and verse 41. Now this is after he's already swallowed up all these people. Number 16 and verse 41 says, On the next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses. I like what somebody said one time about that word murmur. They said you can't even say it without sounding like you're doing it. <laughs> murmur. Murmur. That, they, they murmured all the time. And God got sick of it. And here they murmur again and say, You have killed the people of the Lord. And at this moment, what happens is a plague begins. And I've often described it this way. It would be like you being at Neyland Stadium. And you're on the 50-yard line. And you're looking across all the way to the other 50. And there's a wave that has started. You know how they do that? You know, they'll do this number and then that thing just goes all the way around. Pretty cool, isn't it? But on this day, you look across and there's a wave that started. But it's not people rising. It's people dropping that's what's happening on this occasion. People are dropping dead. And God says to Aaron, Aaron, get your censer. Run into the midst of the congregation for the plague has started. And Aaron gets his censer. He runs right into the middle of that congregation. And the Bible says when the plague got to Aaron, it stopped right there. I've often wondered what the guy right behind Aaron thought. <laughs> He's next. But do you see what we have here? In Numbers 16 and verse 46, it says that Aaron took it as Moses commanded. He ran into the midst of the congregation and already the plague had begun among the people. So he put in the incense and he made atonement for the people. There's a couple of things I want you to see in that. Go. Run into the midst of them. Make atonement. Wrath has gone out from the Lord. Here's what I want you to see. You have somebody running in and stopping the wrath of God. Let me give you another one. You remember this story? From Numbers 25. The Israelites were committing fornication with the women of Moab. Some guy gets him a pretty young lady, I guess, and brings her to the congregation and says, Whoo, boys, look at what I brought home. 
And the Bible says that he goes into the tent, the two of them together, and they're going to do what everybody else has been doing. It doesn't take long to understand what happened. The Bible says that Phinehas ran into the tent, and with one thrust of a javelin, he stuck both of them through with one thrust of that javelin. But in Numbers, the 25th chapter and verse 11, God says that Phinehas turned back my wrath. What did he do? A plague had started. God's punishing these people. Phinehas goes in. He does what he does, and it stops. He turned back my wrath. Look at what the Bible says in Psalm 106 and verse 30. Psalm 106 and verse 30. Psalm 106 and verse 30. It says, Then Phinehas stood up, and he intervened, and so the plague was stopped. And so I'm emphasizing now the words, he intervened. Do you see what we have here? In both of these incidents, we have sin. We have God's wrath that's being poured out. And somebody runs in in each of these incidences and intervenes and makes atonement and stops the wrath of God. Here's my question. Who ran in for us? When God's wrath was impending on every single one of us, who ran in for us when God was angry about our sin? The answer of Romans 3 is is that Jesus did. Jesus propitiates God's wrath. He appeased the wrath of God by paying the penalty for sin. It's here that I feel like I need now to read from Isaiah chapter 53. I think this section says it all. Turn to Isaiah 53 and let's look in verse 3. Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 3. Isaiah 53, it says in verse 3 that he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned away, everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10, I think, is strong. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. You know, there's a lot of answers to the question, who crucified Jesus? You can say, well, the Jews crucified Jesus. The Romans crucified Jesus. Pilate crucified Jesus. Herod crucified Jesus. I crucified Jesus. But it's also true that God crucified Jesus. God set him forth. He's God's answer to this problem. And so Isaiah 53 and verse 10 says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11, I think, says it. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. 
God's satisfied. When Jesus dies on the cross, the wrath of God is satisfied. He goes on to say in the verse, By his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Here is a truth that staggers my mind. God gave of himself to himself for himself to save us from himself. You get that? God gave himself to himself for himself to save us from himself. And I may emphasize this right here too. You know, we talk about being saved from hell. There's a sense in which we're being saved from God. We're being saved from God. Because God is the God who administers wrath to all those whose sins are not atoned for. What a tremendous truth that is. Jesus ran in for us and propitiated the wrath of God. Well, who can avoid God's wrath? Jesus dying doesn't automatically save everybody. If it did, the whole world's already saved. You understand that, don't you? That him dying on the cross doesn't automatically save everyone. We have to come in faith. We have to come in faith and we have to receive what is offered there. And what Romans is teaching is that we come trusting in Jesus for our salvation. We come trusting in Jesus for our salvation on the basis of his blood being shed for us. Look again at Romans 3, verse 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is through faith. The righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. And so the ones who are going to avoid the wrath of God are all those who come in faith to Jesus. We come trusting in Him. You know, sometimes we sing the song, Nothing in my hand I bring, Simply to thy cross I cling. Is repentance involved in that? Absolutely. Is confession of our faith in Jesus in that? Absolutely. Is baptism in that? Absolutely. But in every single bit of it, we are placing our faith in the gift of God who took our penalty on the cross and propitiated the wrath of God. And so all those who come in faith. What great things are going to come for us as a result? Well, we go back to our courtroom now and we get some terms that come from the courtroom. One of the things that happens is that we're going to be justified. You read verse 23 and 24 again. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. When we come, when we come and we accept the payment of Jesus for our penalty, God declares us justified. And it is to declare or pronounce righteous and therefore acceptable. That's the idea. And I don't think it's too far from the idea. <laughs> it's always been easy for me to remember. Somebody once said to be justified is just as if I'd never sinned. And that's really right. <laughs> 
That when God pronounces you righteous and acceptable, he looks at it now as just as if you'd never sinned. He's not going to hold it. Jesus paid the penalty for it. You're justified. Isn't that a wonderful, wonderful thought? And then it also goes on to say in Romans that the other thing that comes for us is that we are redeemed. We are released by the payment of a ransom. That when we sinned against God, the very first time we sold us into Satan's slave market. And Satan said he's mine. But then Jesus comes right along and pays the penalty. He gives his life as a ransom. And we are purchased back off this slave market. To be children of God. Alright, let's read the paragraph one more time. Romans 3 and verse 21. Let's see if, if we've got the sense of it now. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God. Which is through faith in Jesus Christ. To all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation by His blood through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness, because God in His forbearance had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. In Jesus. Indeed, no greater paragraph was ever written. I want us to finish tonight by reading one more companion paragraph. Go to Romans chapter 5 now and let's read verse 6 beginning. Romans chapter 5 beginning in verse 6. For when we were still without strength. The idea is, 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 is that you, you had no strength. There was nothing you could do. You had no power. When we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath. Through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. I've always liked to demonstrate it this way, that when you and I sinned against God, there was a great separation that took place, a huge chasm in between us and God. God is on this side, now we're on this side. What can we do to get back over here? Nothing. If God decides to leave that situation just like that, we're doomed forever because there's nothing that we could do. But God sent Jesus. And Jesus died on the cross. And God, in essence, has a bridge now by which we can come back to Him. And when we obey the gospel, we're able to walk that bridge have our sins washed away through the blood of Jesus Christ and be reconciled to the God of heaven. He did it while we were ungodly. He did it while we were sinners. He did it while we were enemies. That's the love 
of God. And I'll say this too. This used to be said a good bit, and some kind of say, well, I don't know about that. But the more I've looked into it, I think it's right. Jesus come, came in and gave his blood and provided atonement. Somebody again just kind of looked at the English word and says, it looks like to me that thing is saying at one meant. Well, that's really the idea. That's exactly what happened. When Jesus paid the price and I obeyed the gospel, I am now at one with God. We are friends. We're no longer enemies. And I will be with him for all eternity because of what my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did. I want to tell you, what God did is absolutely incredible. And we need to thank him for it every single day. I hope the lesson's been helpful to you tonight to help you to understand what really took place at the cross of Jesus Christ for you. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, our plea is that you would obey the gospel tonight. That you would come and, and that you would be repenting of your sins. That you would confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then allow us to take that old man. And by the way, I say us. It's really Colossians emphasize it's, the, it's God's hands that are at work. God is the one who will take you. You may see, you may see David's hands. But it's the hands of God that are really at work. He will take you and he will bury that old man. Good riddance. And there he stays forever. And you rise to walk in newness of life. And then live faithful to the God of heaven. And heaven will be your home when this life is over. Do you need to obey the gospel tonight? I hope you will. I hope you're thinking seriously about it. I'd love to see you obey the gospel tonight. Tomorrow night we'll talk about what hinders me from being baptized. But we don't want to wait till tomorrow. If you know what you need to do tonight, obey the gospel of Jesus Christ tonight. Would you? Come while we stand and as we sing.